Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Well, good evening, guys. My name's Stephen. I serve as one of the pastors here, and as with every week, I come to this time with a lot of enthusiasm. Like, I am super pumped to get to open the Word of God that we call the Bible with you. Uh, If you haven't been with us, let me catch you up. We are continuing our message series called That You May Believe. We're going through what we call the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John was the story of Jesus captured by one of his closest friends. In fact, John himself says he was the one that Jesus loved. Now, whether that was just a kind of a rub to the other disciples or whether that was actually the case, we don't know. Uh, But we do know that John, this story of Jesus is beautifully told by John and it has these wonderful movements, and uh, we've kind of worked our way through them from a prologue to Jesus establishing covenants, and then we start to see Jesus perform miracles. And now we're going to be in a pivotal uh, chapter, where we'll be in chapter six. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them. If you don't have them, you all have your phones, and those all contain Bibles. Um, so if you would like to, we're, we're going to use the Christian Standard Bible. That's the, the version that will be on your screen. If you don't have either of those, or you just don't feel like getting it out, you can look on the screen. We'll have those on the screen for you. So uh, as you guys are turning there, John chapter 6 is really a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. To this point, John the Baptist, his cousin, has been much more popular than him. Um, John the Baptist has been followed by many more people um, and has more acclaim and fame and uh, name recognition. Thank you, Jason. Yes. Um, and uh, this now, we, beginning with last week's passage, the very beginning of chapter 6, we see that turn. We see Jesus become extremely popular. In fact, last week he was followed by a crowd of about 17,000 people. Your, your Bible would say 5,000 men. We know that most men have wives and most wives have children. So we say between 12 and 17,000 people were probably there when Jesus does another miraculous sign by feeding the people. And we, we discussed last week that, that, uh, that there are two ways when we read biblical narrative, there's two ways that we need to attack it. We need to attack it to see what God was teaching through the story, right? What is, what is God doing in and through the story and through the people in the story? The second thing that we really need to focus on is what the author was writing the story for. Because each, uh, we, while we believe that the word of God was inspired by God, it is inspired through humans, and humans write with personality, and they, they choose themes and ways to move through stories. And so what we saw last week was that John began, is, is making a really big case for Jesus as the new Moses. And uh, this is going to continue with this, this next sign that Jesus performs here. If you don't know who Moses is, 
He was like the Thomas Jefferson of the Jews, right? He, he was not like the, the father of their country, like we would say George Washington was. Uh, that would be a man named Abraham. But Moses was kind of that, that next great leader that arose out of the people. Um, and uh, he led them out of slavery in Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And he did many signs and wonders. And he had, uh, he had lots to say about, uh, about how they should govern themselves that came directly from God. In fact, he would go to the, the mountain, uh, and he would come down with tablets that were written on by the hand of God, and we call those the Ten Commandments. And so Moses was a big deal, and and in Deuteronomy, uh, as Moses is kind of moving towards the end of his life, in a book called Deuteronomy, which is literally a repeating of the law, um, we see this verse where Moses is saying, hey, there's going to be a prophet He's going to come, and he's going to be like me, but he's going to be better than me, and you need to follow him. Um, And so John here is making the case that Jesus is this second Moses. And we kind of walked through a couple of those things uh, last week. We talked about the Passover. We talked about the crowds. We talked about the mountain. We talked about uh, signs and wonders. And this is going to be another point in the story where we see some of that imagery of Moses pop up. And then Jesus is actually himself going to begin to proclaim that he is a new, new Moses. So we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 16. It says this, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat and they were afraid, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board and at once the boat was at the shore where they were headed. So this is the first kind of idea, this the first section that we're going to tackle tonight. Now, uh, I don't know about you guys, uh, but I can kind of remember my graduation uh, from high school. And uh, I remember thinking that graduation was like the day I become independent, right? It's the day that like I get to do whatever I want to do. Like I get to just be. Fine, like, finally, I am free, and I'll never have to, like, you know, I don't have to go to school anymore, and nobody's making me do all these things, and, and, and then um, I, I quickly realized that in high school, I had less people telling me what to do than ever, like, and as I've gotten older, just more and more people are telling me what to do. I thought that, you know, like, co- like college is freedom, and, and it is kind of freedom, but not if you want to live very long uh, because you have to get a boss and then that boss has bosses and those bosses have underbosses that, you know, boss you around. So there's lots of bosses and then you get married and you have another boss uh, and, and then you have kids and you have the bossiest of bosses who uh, my kid is, is a year and a half right now. She knows no language yet she is so sassy. Um, and so like, we, you know, I, I, what we ended up realizing is that graduation was not freedom. Um, graduation was just the beginning of people telling us what to do, and then the beginning of me having to work really hard to feed myself, and then to feed myself and my wife, and then to feed myself and my wife and my my child, and, and hopefully by God's grace, more children, right? You know, high school was the only time I didn't really have to work, and now, until I die, <laughs> I'm going to be working, be working really hard, and so, uh, you know, graduation was was not the the demarcation of freedom that I thought it was. And uh, oftentimes we, like when we're thinking about like working hard, uh, you know, we look at today's society and we do work hard. I'm not saying that. But if we look at 
the time that Jesus was, was living. Um, when you talk about working hard to eat, it was really hard, right? They, are, they live in a mostly arid, deserty area, um, and they have to make things grow because they have to eat. They don't have just, you know, tons of cattle walking around. If they had too many cattle, they wouldn't have enough water to, you know, to water the cattle. If they didn't have enough grain to feed the cattle, the cattle would die, right? So there's this, this balance that these people are living in that created a lot of work. Another way that they would eat is, is through fishing, right? They, they live around this sea. Now, the, uh, the Israelites never actually became like a sea-bearing people, which is why if you look in like Jewish literature and Jewish poetry, uh, they're terrified of the sea because they literally don't know about it. It's just this like big, giant, terrifying place. Um, and so we have this lake here that's, that's pretty long, you know, pretty far across, about six miles across the place called Lake Tiberias or, or the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is what they call it, um, and, and so even there's some fear there, but, but fishing was a way that they would feed themselves, but fishing was also hard work, right? Now people do fishing, I hear, because it's not me, but I hear that people go fishing to relax. Um, I, uh, again, that's not something that I would do, but here, fish, fishing was work, right? They would throw these big, heavy nets down, and then they would drag those nets full of fish back onto the boat, and then they had to you know, clean them by hand. All that sounds so disgusting to me, but that's what they did. But they worked so hard to live, right? And some of the disciples we know were fishermen. They were experienced on the waters, on these very waters, the Lake of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. They knew what was going on. Now, now what's uh, interesting to note is that this sea is in like a wind tunnel. Have you ever been to Chicago? Anyone ever been to Chicago? Absolutely one of my favorite cities. I went to Bible school there. I loved it. Uh, but it's right off the lake, uh, Lake Michigan there, and um, if, you would, if you would get on a windy day going toward or away from the wind, it, like the buildings would create these wind tunnels where like literally you felt like you were like leaning into it just to kind of go forward or that it was pushing you along. It's wild. Well, this is kind of what the, the, the Sea of Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is, it's kind of surrounded on both sides by mountains, and so wind would just come through there, really quickly, and it would create these crazy, terrible storms. And you couldn't predict them. You didn't know when they would come, but they were so violent. And this is actually what we see going on here. When the, the disciples start out, they're, they're experienced on this sea. They wouldn't have started out if there was a storm, right? If there's storm clouds, they're not going across. They're going to wait. But there was none of them. They just kind of were waiting around for Jesus because Jesus had just run away uh, because people were trying to make him a puppet king. Um, and so Jesus runs away. They're sitting there waiting, and they're like, "Well, I, I, I guess we gotta go across. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do." So they do. They get in the boat and they start paddling. It says that they had been paddling for a while, but they'd only rowed about three or four miles. It's about six miles across, and they started probably before it was really dark. And they just keep paddling, and they're getting nowhere. And then this strong wind comes. This storm blows out of nowhere. And these men who were just with Jesus, that just saw Jesus feed 17,000 people off of a little kid's lunch, they freak out. They don't know what to do. And so for experienced fishermen to be so scared on waters that they know, it means it had to be pretty bad. So they probably had a reason to be a little scared. But they get more and more scared, and it becomes really interesting how this story plays out. 
But there's a, I said that you know, John is trying to show us that, that Jesus is the new Moses. Well, even in this story, he's paralleling a lot of the words with uh, another story of Moses, where Moses parts the Red Sea. In fact, the, the words um, that are found in, in, eight, in verse 18, a high wind arose, are the same words to describe what happened when Moses raises his staff and a, a high wind comes and blows and blows the, the waters apart so that the people of Israel can walk across. And then that wind stops and, and the, the uh, ocean or the, the sea, the Red Sea there, uh, envelops all of the Egyptian army. And John is going to parallel that exact story with exactly what happens here. When we read, it says that, when, that Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. Uh, and they were willing to take him on board. And, and what we know here is that this story is actually uh, told from all three, sorry, all four perspectives of the gospel writers. All four of them wrote about this same story. And so what we know is that when Jesus gets onto the boat, not only does the boat all of a sudden get onto the other side, but the, the wind stops. And, and John is showing here that God has this ability to calm storms, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus is the God of not only sickness, not only the Sabbath, but also of the sea. And these, these really interesting image, you know, images that John is writing in, that Jesus is, is, is really starting to show us, and it's for a Jewish audience. And so we read these stories, and we're like, well, that's, that's, that's great. You know, I don't often go on the sea. Um, so the fact that, you know, Jesus can stop the, the wind doesn't really affect my life all that much. So we know what the author was doing. Let's see what God was trying to do through the story. See, when, when in John's account, when the, the uh, disciples actually start to freak out, it's when they see Jesus. It's not the storm that freaks them out. It's that Jesus is walking on the water. In verse 19, it says, after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. The language ties these two things together. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. Now, mind you, in some of the other accounts, we hear that, that they thought he may have been a ghost, right? If you see someone walking four miles out into the middle of open water, there's some questions, Right? I don't know what's happening. This isn't what's supposed to happen, right? People don't walk on water. But Jesus' divine nature was cloaked in a veil of humanity, and because of this, the disciples forgot who Jesus was. They had, they had made Jesus into their own image. The image of the prophet they thought would come, the image of the Messiah that they wanted. The disciples were still going through what we call sanctification. They were still learning who Jesus is and was. So really, I think this fear could be twofold, threefold. Really, it could be the storm, right? It could be like, hey, nobody should be walking on the water. But it also should be, oh, Jesus is God. The creator of the sea is walking toward us. And, and I don't know about you, but, like, I would freak out. <laughs> like, like, if that moment hits me where I see God cloaked in humanity, and I realize, oh, yeah, he's God, I think I would freak out a little bit, too. Because, friends, I think we've forgotten who Jesus is because we have so much put him into our own image. 
It's not just the disciples who did that. It's us who do that. When we, when uh, there's a, a, a really good quote that every year it pops up on my social media, I, I share it again that says, hey, when, when Jesus starts to hate everybody that we hate, uh, maybe we've made him in our image and, and not letting ourselves be made in his. And I think the disciples are starting to realize that maybe they have stripped the divinity of Jesus. And I think for us today, it's the same thing. If Jesus just seems to dislike everything that I dislike and like everything that I like, maybe it's not the actual Jesus you're following. Maybe you've followed yourself and disguised it as Jesus. Maybe we've put selfish ambition, maybe we've put sin in the place of Jesus or politics in the place of Jesus or we've put our preferences in the place of Jesus. And I think that as the disciples see this and Jesus comes and breaks out of the, like, they cannot say that he is anything but divine. He's walking across the sea. I think when we have that moment, when we realize Jesus is walking towards us, it's kind of freaky. And it can cause us to fear. But you know what calms them down? They realize that Jesus is coming towards them. They realize the divinity of Jesus. But what calms them down is when Jesus in verse 20 says, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I is a terrible translation, okay? I am not a, a, a biblical expert. I am not a biblical language expert. I do read a lot of biblical language experts, and all of them agree that this might be the worst translation possible of it is I. The, the Greek words are ego eimi, okay? The ego eimi, uh, we see actually throughout Scripture. We see those two words put together. And what it, what it is translated as everywhere else is I am who I am. Now, that also seems ambiguous and confusing. It is I is confusing. I am who I am is confusing. But when we understand what the gospel or what the, the disciples would have heard, it makes a little more sense. You see, when God gives himself a name in the book of Exodus, when he's describing himself, this is how he describes himself. Ego, Amy. I am who I am. When Moses says, who will, who will send me? Or who will I say sent me when I go to the Egyptians? God says, I am sent you. Ego, Amy. So here, the disciples are in the middle of this storm. They're freaked out. They're freaked out because a dude is walking across the water. But then, God says, I am who I am. And they know. They know that God is there, and then they know that God is telling them not to be afraid. God's telling them, I've got you. The same God who told Moses to go to the Egyptians, the same God who freed their ancestors, the same God who did so many signs and wonders is now here with them. In fact, that's the, one of the names that, that Jesus is given, Emmanuel, God with us. And so I think the disciples here have this moment where they're like, oh, yes, God is here. And so they welcome him into the boat. And I love what happens. The, the, the other versions of the story say that the, the sea calms. 
This version, so it's somewhere in between, but this version says that all of a sudden, they are where they're supposed to be going. They had two more miles to go. They had three more miles to go. But somehow, boom, Jesus is in the boat, you're there. So the first thing that I really want us to kind of take away from this whole story is that when Jesus gets in your boat, you're home. And I I know that sounds like this corny, like, pastor saying, but let's break it down. The moment, this this is the salvation story. This is your salvation story. This is my salvation story. We spend our lives wandering, toiling. We spend our lives in trouble and in, on stormy seas, right? Life is hard. Nobody gets out alive. Nobody gets out unscarred and unfaced. And when we decide to put our faith in Jesus, everything changes, but nothing changes, right? We don't all of a sudden, like, everything is all good, and I don't have any fear anymore, and my marriage is perfect, and my kids all obey me, and, you know, my, I got a promotion at work, and all of a sudden my bank account is full, and my debts, like, that doesn't happen. So nothing changes, really, but also everything changes. Because when we allow Jesus into our boat, we have found where our soul has been searching We have found what our soul thirsts for, what our soul hungers for. So we are home. I am someone who has wandered my whole life. Before I moved to to a little place called Lake Jackson, Texas, I had never lived any place more than three years. I only made it six in Lake Jackson. But I wandered, I wandered, I wandered, and everyone says, where are you from? And I said, well, I went to high school in Pittsburgh and in Northeast Texas. I was born in New Jersey. I grew up on the West Coast in the Bay Area. You know, my parents were pastors in Detroit. I helped plant a church in Detroit when I was there, you know, in 2015. Like, I kind of have this story of everywhere. My soul was searching. And while I had a home with Christ, it wasn't until I came here. And I said, you know what, this is my home. And I was able to rest. There's something, like, I'm not looking for the next thing, right? And so when Jesus comes into our boat, when we, we allow for salvation to take over, when we accept that free gift, we're home. Finally, your soul can rest. Finally, your soul can know, I'm where I've always tried to get. Because, friends, Jesus... It's the destination. So often we're, we're concerned with getting to heaven, which that's something that happens. It's not about getting to heaven. It's about getting to Jesus. And Jesus is that destination. When we worry about where we'll spend, you know, like what heaven will look like, and will it be, you know, will we have jobs there? Will we be married there? Will, will there be a new heaven or new earth? Like, what if I was like a really bad Christian? Does that mean I have to like clean heavenly toilets? Like, I don't, like, I don't know, right? We, 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 we can get so worried about all of that when really the reality is, is the destination is Jesus. Heaven is nice, Jesus is better. Eternal life is nice, but Jesus is better. And so the moment that we choose to follow Jesus, we are home. I love old hymns. I think they have a great place in the history of the church, but 
I think they focus a little too much on heaven, about longing for a home, which I don't think that's bad, but I think we got it wrong. I think Jesus was the home all along. I want to go to heaven to be with Jesus, right? I don't want to go to heaven just to be in heaven with a milkshake cloud, right? Like, I don't, like that's not what I want. I want Jesus. And the, what's beautiful about that is the moment that we choose to put our faith in him, we're there. We're not waiting for heaven. We have heaven because we have God. So then verse 22 goes on to say this. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had only been one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat. Apparently, they were stalking the disciples. But that his disciples had gone off alone. So some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So friends, what we know is that these people did see the signs. John just told us they had seen what Jesus had done. They saw the miracle, but they missed the sign. So my question to us, friends, is are we missing the signs in the miracles? It's obvious that these people had seen the signs. The text tells us, but they had completely missed what the signs were pointing to. So often miracles happen in our lives. In fact, I think that more things are miracles than we give them credit for. God's grace is apparent in everything if you look. But miracles are not just for us. Miracles are not just so that we can get through another day. They point us to Jesus. When God's showing us his grace, do we just take it as good luck or do we just take it as a blessing or or do we allow it to show us what he's trying to show us through it? Because it's very easy for us to get caught up in God's provision and forget that he is provider, right? God provides for us not so that we can continue doing whatever it is that we were doing that caused us to need, but to show us that he is the one that will provide when we do need, right? God is not going to send us the things, whether it's money or jobs or houses or cars or whatever it is that we, that we feel like we need. When God provides for that need, he doesn't do it, he does it partially because he's a good God, but he does it to remind us that we are his and that he is the provider, that we can do nothing. In fact, we looked at that last week. Last week when when Jesus tests his disciple Philip, he says, hey, how are you going to feed all these people that are here? John tells us that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Jesus was testing Philip not to find out how well he can figure out how to feed people, but he's testing Philip to show Philip that he doesn't trust Jesus to feed people. And so, friends, I don't want us to be like these people in the story, forgetting the sign in the middle of the miracle. 
I think in my life, the biggest thing here is that, I, that I see is my daughter for years, my wife and I tried to have children and we couldn't. We finally were able to get pregnant and we lost our child on March 16th of 2021. Her name was Mercer and we loved her. But she was a miracle. We didn't know if we could get pregnant. And a month later, we found out we were pregnant again with Sweet Sparrow. And it would be so easy to look at this miracle and just say, God, thank you for giving us something that we had prayed for for so long. Thank you. We're so thankful. And to forget that he is the creator and sustainer of life. To forget that he gave us Sparrow to know him better. To know what it's like to try to raise a rambunctious child who doesn't know anything and runs into danger like it's, you know, her profession. And to think, God, that's me. That's me. I'm the one running into danger like it's my profession and you're a father just trying to get me to stop. Trying to get me to learn trying to teach me your ways. I could thank God for her all day long, but he didn't give her to me just to give her to me. He gave her to me to teach me something. I think that we often can be these people who miss what Jesus is trying to teach us just because we're looking at the miraculous things he does. We need to praise him for the miracles, but man, We need to learn those signs. Verse 27 says this. Don't work for the food that perishes, for food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Friends, the challenge here is don't spend your life pursuing insignificant things. The reality is, is we think of the, the, the physical world as the most real world there is when the Bible tells us that the physical world is like secondary to the spiritual world that's the real world because the spiritual world is eternal. The physical world is temporal. We will spend 80, 90, 100 years maybe on this earth. And we work hard. These people, right? We talked about how much they would toil, how much trouble they would go through just to eat. And Jesus says, look, don't spend your time working for food that's going to perish. There's this food, this eternal life that you get through eating And Jesus would go on to say that it is the bread of life. It is bread that has eternal significance that you need to eat. And next week we'll get into where that bread comes from and what that bread is all about. But spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Jesus is telling the people, look, I know you need to eat. I understand that. I understand that it's hard. And that you feel like all of your time 
It's just doing things to be able to get food so you don't die, right? And I think some of, uh, some of us can feel that, right? Like, we, we feel like all of our time is just doing stuff so that we don't die. And those that are, you know, in, in our care don't die. And Jesus isn't saying that your life here on earth is insignificant. But it was but a comparative to an eternal life. It is. There's an eternal life a life that goes beyond this physical that is so much more important because Jesus knows that that life is eternal. His kingdom is forever. And so here, Jesus begins to kind of whet these people's appetite, so to speak. He says, don't spend your life, don't spend your time, don't spend everything that you have on something that goes away. Give it to something that has more significance. The reality is is that everything we work for that is outside of God's will, it's just insignificant. It'll pass away. Our cars, our toys, our houses, it's all temporary. Now, I believe that God created us for a purpose on purpose, that he has a very specific plan for our life. And when we are working in that purpose and in his will, that we are fulfilling what God created us here on earth to be. But he also called us by our name to be missionaries and evangelists, to be ambassadors for him. So our life is twofold. Yeah, we still got to work to pay the bills. We still got to raise our kids. We still got to take care of our, our lawns. We got to take care of all those things that take our time. But we can't be like everybody else where that's, that's it. I got my retirement. I'm good to go. I've sent my kids off to school. I'm good to go. There's something greater something so much more significant that God is calling us into. And we spend all this time and all this energy and all this effort on what is physical and we forget. There's something spiritual that's so much more deeply meaningful. And so my last question to us is, friends, are we toiling for the spiritual satisfaction or are we resting in Jesus? So maybe we've gotten to the point where like, we're, we're good, right? Like, like we understand that, that Jesus has called us into something bigger and greater. We understand that the spiritual world is, is so real and so important and so significant. But we spend so much time and effort trying to please God. We spend so much time and effort trying to do the right things or trying to serve or trying to do whatever that we toil. We've turned our toil to eat into our toil to please God. And neither of them is what Jesus has invited us into. He's invited us to come and see and rest in him. Because when you're at home, you're resting. When you're at home, you're safe. When you're at home, your toil is at an end. And friends, when Jesus gets in your boat, you're home. So I think what Jesus is really, truly inviting us into in this entire story is rest. 
is knowing that he is in control. When we're hungry, he can feed us. When we're in the middle of a storm, he can calm the storm. When we don't know where to go, what to do, we don't see where he is, we can just rest in him. And in a story full of all of this action, and there's, as we move through chapter 6, there's so much more to it. In the middle of all of that, the call to rest seems insignificant in our humanly, human minds. But that's the invitation, is to rest on the work that Jesus has done. Not to try to do it ourselves, not to try to figure it out, but to trust that when we've got him, we're home. And yeah, we still got to show up to work. Yeah, we still got to do all those things. But ultimately, we're already home. Let's pray.